0: Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the same mind be in you. These words from the Apostle Paul written to the church in Philippi. These words to the Apostle Paul written to us today speak about how we are to live our Christian lives, how we are to live outwardly turned towards others, how we are to live following the example of Jesus Christ, following the example of his humility, following the example of his love, following the example of his grace. This speaks to us about how we are to live our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, grasped, hung on to, clung to, maintained, demanded, insisted upon. What Paul is doing here is he is quoting from a hymn, just as preachers will often quote from poems and tell stories and Quote from hymns as they preach. So, also, Paul liked to quote from the Old Testament passages of Scripture, and he also quoted some hymns. And this is one of the most famous hymns that he quotes. Now, there are New Testament scholars today who claim that the high Christology, the high understanding of Jesus as being God incarnate in human flesh, God brought down to earth and born in a baby and lived among us, God incarnate in flesh, there are some scholars who claim that this was a late development within the Christian faith, that it developed late in the first century, about the time that John wrote his gospel. Hence, you get this language about him, about uh, the, uh, Jesus being the Word of God, the divine Logos, who was, who was God and then became flesh and dwelt among us. They're ignoring, however, when they say these things, they're ignoring the Christ hymn, which is here in Philippians chapter 2, beginning essentially at verse 6 and going all the way through verse 11. The Christ hymn, it was included in this letter to the Philippians, and it depends on who you ask as to how you date the letter to the Philippians. It it probably ought to be dated sometime around 60 A.D., 60, 61. If it was written from prison in Rome, it was written sometime about 61 A.D. Paul evangelized the Christians 10 years earlier, back in 49, 50, 51. He evangelized the Philippian Christians, founded the churches there amongst Gentiles in Philippi, and he taught them the faith of the church, and he probably taught them this hymn. So while he writes this hymn down... In his letter to them in 60, it was known to Christians for at least ten years prior to that in Greek, in the Greek language, which is what the letter to the Philippians was written in. But even more than that, there are elements in this hymn which tell scholars that it's been translated from Greek, I mean from Aramaic into Greek. It's not original with Greek. It didn't start out in Greek. It seems to be original in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, the language of the New Testament church in Palestine. It seems as though this was translated from a Hebraic tongue. There are certain Hebraic couplet characteristics here that tell people the structure sounds like a Hebrew poem or song and hence probably originated in the Hebrew language or Aramaic. If so, then this hymn dates back before 50, possibly as early as 40 A.D. Well, Jesus died and was raised from the dead about the year 30, 31, 32, 33, somewhere in there. Probably about 30. Let's just take 30. It's easy to use that. If Jesus died and was raised in 30 A.D., And this hymn was known in Aramaic by 40 AD and known in Greek by 50 AD so that Paul could teach it to the church in Philippi. And so they would be familiar with it when he wrote them in 60 AD. That means that the thoughts and ideas contained in this hymn here in Philippians actually go back to just 10 years, less than 10 years actually, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not something that's late, something that's early, something that predates all of the written literature in the New Testament. The first book in the New Testament, the first thing in the New Testament that was written was probably the, letter to the, the first letter to the Thessalonians, which was written in about 49, 50, or 51, somewhere in there. This predates that probably, all the way back to possibly the early 40s in Aramaic. And in it we have some of the highest theology about Jesus to be found anywhere. Who though he was in the form of God, Morphe Theo, the form of God, did not regard equality with God, parity with God, identity with God, as something to be exploited, grasped, hung on to, cling to, demanded upon. But emptied himself. Well, that one there has caused a lot of debate. A lot of debate. Back in the 1700s, they started saying that this means that Jesus dumped his divinity and became a human, poured out his divinity and became a human being, stopped being God and started being one of us. And that is how, uh, back in the 1700s and 1800s, they started to understand the incarnation. But that's not what it means. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. What what might that mean? What might it mean for him to empty himself? Well, the translation is the suspect here. And there's lots of different ways to translate it. The King Jimmy translates this as made himself of no reputation. That sounds strange. What does that have to do with emptying? But the literal word here means to empty. What does it mean? Well, here's a possible translation. But emptied himself into the form of a slave. If you have a jar of orange juice and a glass, and you pour that orange juice into that glass, does the orange juice change? Shake your head no. It doesn't change. It's still orange juice. It's gone from one container to a different container. It's gone from a great big jar to a smaller glass. But it's still orange juice in the glass, just as it was orange juice in the jar. The imagery here is similar to that. God pours God's self into the form of a servant, a slave, a human into human flesh. Hmm. Hmm. Emptied himself, poured himself, deposited himself, to use modern translation, downloaded himself. <laughs> being uh, being th- born in human likeness. Notice born. Now, Mom sometimes said that I was hatched, but we've all been born. We've all been born. Jesus was also born. So it wasn't some miraculous snap your fingers and he appears. No, he's born. Well, we know that. We know the stories of the nativity. In Bethlehem of Judea, Mary gives birth to the baby Jesus. We'll celebrate that again when we talk about his incarnation and birth over in Advent and at Christmas Eve. He's born. And he's not born the son of a prince or a military general or a wealthy merchant or the high priest of Jerusalem. No. Emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness And being found in human form, just as he was in the form of God, now he's found in human form. He humbles himself further. I mean, he's already humbled himself becoming human, friends. Pouring himself from the morphe or the form of God into the morphe or the form of a human is quite a bit of humbling to begin with. Humans relative to God are a spit in the bucket, nothing. But then he's humbled even further because it's not just a human, it's the lowest of humans a servant, a slave, a resident of an occupied territory. Judea was occupied by the Romans. A citizen or a resident of an occupied territory, not a citizen of Rome, a citizen of Judea, not a citizen of Rome, the lowest of the low the son not of a rich merchant, not of the high priest of Jerusalem, not of a military general, not of a prince, not a son of Herod, but the son of a carpenter. Can't get lower than lower than lower, friends, and it goes even more. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. In that world, if you were a citizen of the empire, you'd get beheaded. If you committed other crimes, you might die in various and different ways. But if the Romans execute you for sedition or for some pretty base crimes, for treason or other base crimes, they're going to crucify you. Publicly and visibly and gruesomely. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Not a laudable death, as if a death could be laudable, but a gruesome, horrible, shameful death. So from the morphe of God to the morphe of a human, even lower, a servant, even lower still, a slave, even lower still, to die on the cross. He didn't consider equality with God as something to be maintained, grasped, depended upon, demanded, but instead humbled himself, became one of us, lived as one of us, laughed as one of us, cried as one of us, taught us, and then died as and for us. This is the essence of the gospel. In this tiny little poem, in this tiny little song, in this one stanza, this hymn tells the story of the incarnation, birth, life, death of Jesus. In just a few short lines. But it's not done, as the gospel isn't done with his death. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. Because Jesus has done all this, because he was incarnate in human flesh, because he emptied himself into the form of a servant, lived as one of us, and died as one and for us, therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, sometimes the Bible paints things in multiple shades of gray, lots of different variation. And sometimes the Bible is exclusive, starkly so. Night and day, like hot and cold, east and west, north and south. And this is one of those examples. Every knee should bow. First of all, it's the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, when it says every, does it mean the knees over here, but not the knees over there? Does it mean my knees and John's knees, but not y'all's knees? Does it mean all the knees that are in this room, but none of the knees that are out there? Does it mean all American knees, but not European knees, or African knees, or Asian knees, or Middle Eastern knees, or Indian knees? Or does it mean every knee? What knee is not included in every knee? Every knee should bend or bow. And every knee. Tongue should confess that's one of those du- uh, couplets right there that come from Hebrew this idea that you say it one way and then you turn around and you say it again that's a Hebrew characteristic in poetry every knee should bow and every tongue should confess and where well in heaven well of course that makes sense of course every knee in heaven is going to bow to Jesus Jesus is the incarnate Word of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. Of course, every knee in heaven is going to bow to Him. In heaven and on earth. Whoo. Every knee on earth. Wow, that's pretty, that's a pretty tall order. Sometimes our knees have trouble bowing to Jesus. When we resist responding in faith to the calling that we have received. When we say no to God's calling us into our relationship anew and afresh. When we say no to the grace offered to us at the table of the Lord. When we struggle with the calling that God has on our lives, it's tempting to say no. And when we do, we don't bow every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth that doesn't just mean people who work in caves or mines friends it means hades gehenna or hell if you will wow so every means every yep every knee will recognize will proclaim will affirm will shout every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father that's what they call a high christology friends a high theology of jesus and it comes written in Philippians from 60 A.D. But in Paul's preaching in Philippi from 50 A.D., because they knew this, he's quoting it for a reason. He's quoting something that they know to try to get them to understand that this is what they themselves are supposed to be doing. And hence, it reflects the theology of the church from the first couple of decades of its existence following the death and resurrection of Jesus. Very little time for developmental theology or developmental Christology. It's a high Christology going out the gate. It's a high Christology about Jesus, a high theology about Jesus. But he's not just citing this hymn to inform them about theology. He's citing it because they already know it because he's trying to make a point. Let this same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence but much more now in my absence just as you have always obeyed me you know Mark as a pastor that would be a really neat thing to be able to say just as you have always obeyed me Uh. (laughs) just as you have always obeyed me not only in my presence but But much more now in my absence. Wow, that's even bigger. Work out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is really important. And it's not about doing what someone else tells you to do, but but living your life as Jesus calls you to live it. And that's what you're supposed to work out, friends. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He's calling them to be united together. He's calling them to have one mind. He's calling them to be engaged in ministry together, united, in full accord and of one mind having the same love for each other and for the calling that they have received. He is encouraging them to be united together and to engage in a ministry that doesn't look to themselves, that doesn't look to their own needs, that doesn't look to their own desires, that doesn't look to their own will, but to God's needs, God's desire, and God's will. To Christ's needs, Christ's desire, and Christ's will. He's calling them to have the mind of Christ. And that means not demanding station or position that one might have been born with or given to by the society or the culture. It means not depending upon, standing upon one's privilege of position as Jesus could have done. It means instead accepting that he had to be poured out and that we have to be poured out into the form of a servant. We're called to serve each other. We're called to be a people of service, a people that do what Christ did, which is teach the love of God, share the love of God, and even possibly dying in the name of God for our sisters and brothers, giving ourselves that others might know the love of God, standing in the breach, facing down injustice, facing down evil, with the love of God. That is what we are called to do. That is the mind we are called to have. That is how we are called to live. This message kind of anticipates Christmas. In Charles Wesley's beautiful hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which you'll find in your hymnal at page 240, in verse 2 we have the theology, this theology of incarnation stated clearly, Christ the highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, he's born, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, veiled in flesh. Jesus is still God, emptied into a human flesh. He's still God, veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate. The inf- incarnate means in fleshed, Incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Yes, indeed, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. But may our knees and our tongues bow and confess that Jesus is our Lord. And we do that by doing what He did and by living as He calls us to live. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Lord.